Welcome to the Team Health Podcast Program, Beyond Clinical Medicine, what they don't teach you in residency. I'm Rob Strauss, Team Health's Chief Medical Training Officer, and this podcast is one of our series discussing the pandemic and its evolution. Today, specifically, we're going to discuss where we stand and how we are likely to progress. Is there some light at the end of this very long tunnel? Do the antiviral medications give cause for hope? So much has changed, and yet the variants continue to cause illness, deaths, and societal and caregiver frustration and emotional trauma. And today, we're privileged to have David Hogan share his insights. David is Team Health's Vice President of Educational Development, as well as the leader of its Emerging Infectious Disease Task Force. He and this group of physician scientists spend many hours every day reviewing the latest scientific information related to COVID. David confers with colleagues at the CDC to assess the most up-to-date information. He has expertise and is published in graduate education, trauma, and several other topics, a life dedicated to proving medicine as we know it. David, I'm delighted to speak with you as I always leave our conversations with a clearer perspective on whatever topic we're discussing. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. It's an honor to be here. So a question that has been front of mind for most people is when will this be over? You've shared an anecdote in your private physician's office recently in the waiting room. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened there? I, I'd be happy to. It actually opened my eyes yet again to some of the things that are going on with this pandemic and our perspective of this pandemic. Uh, I'm sitting in my doctor's office for routine evaluation type thing. You know, the older you get, the more maintenance you need. So there I was. And everybody is social distanced and masked and kept apart and and very limited as far as your exposure. But there were a number of us in the back waiting area. And as we're sitting there, sort of in the half twilight light of the uh, of that particular room, uh, this one young lady across from us says, just sort of with exasperation, will this pandemic never end? Will this ever be back to normal? And that started a conversation amongst a number of the patients that were back there. And I sort of kept quiet. And then as things progressed, I finally said, do you really want to know the answer to that? Yes. And most people said yes. And there were a couple of the staff there who knew that I was a physician and that this is what I do uh, or have done over the last couple of years. And so we just started talking and we had a very open ended conversation. And these were patients. These were not medical personnel. Although as we progressed, medical personnel came in and it was amazing because I was able to say, yes, of course, it's going to end. And the projections have been when you look at history and you look at the modeling that's going on, which you can't look at the mathematical modeling for this pandemic without looking at what's going on historically, as well as the social and political aspects, 
um, when you look at that, you find that there is a definite end to this pandemic, but it's not going to happen in the way most people think. And the more we talked and the more we all sort of interacted over about 20, 25 minutes, um, the office came to a halt and almost everyone engaged in this conversation. And by the time we were towards the end, there were a number of people in tears, mainly because if you just look at social media and you just look at what's in the news and you just look at what's happening, um, you get the perspective that this will never end and that we are so deep into this that we're to the point that one should just throw their hands up and say, just let it run. There's, there's nothing we can do. And the truth is that we are far from being defenseless. There's much that we can and are doing to shorten this pandemic and to reduce the death toll and to reduce the illness. And it was just that little glimmer of hope, not just for the clinicians who were there, but for the laypersons who were there listening to this, that I think really seemed to strike a chord. And it reinvigorated me a little bit and it reoriented me a little as well to think about what is the foremost question on people's hearts right now? How are they being impacted by this and how best can we provide hope? And uh, I think just by telling the truth and trying to cut through and um, ignore a lot of the hype that's going on and look at it from a perspective of historic intuition, as well as the mathematical modeling, um, we can say that, yes, we are, we are definitely turning the corner and things are beginning to uh, move more towards our favor rather than the viruses. Perfect. David, um, I assume that the tears you're describing were actually tears of hope um, because the sound bites that were disturbing so many people, uh, you were able to cut through that. And it also demonstrates you're such a natural teacher. You don't try to shove things on people, but you wait until they say they're ready to hear, uh, meeting them where they are. So David, you you talked about uh, having a, a historic perspective. What have we learned from other pandemics and what is different about our current situation? Well, the interesting thing is that what we have continued to learn is that um, most things stay the same <laughs> and they have. When we look back at previous pandemics and in particular, we often use the 1918 influenza pandemic because it was so impactful and it has been the closest to what we have going on now uh, in recorded history. But what we find is that we've had the same challenges. And those challenges really revolve around the, um, we've had the same anti-mask and uh, later on anti-vaccine sort of pushes that have been going on. We've had the same social and political challenges with distortion of information um, and those things really have tinted the response to the pandemic and tinted the, um, the way that we've been able to deploy things this time around, such as the new vaccine technologies, um, et cetera. But 
The other thing that we find is that we have some really new challenges that we've never really faced to this intensity before. And those challenges mainly revolve around the absolute open availability of information regarding the virus research that's been done, medical, uh, epidemiologic information. All of that information is openly available. And it, it, it actually is almost funny to me when I hear people talking about one group uh, hiding this or that this is a, some secret agenda, et cetera. There has never been a situation medically to date where that basic information has not been more available. Uh, any layperson can access the most recent and unfortunately often unvetted information with regard to new research, um, which presents a new problem. That problem is that quite frankly, many clinicians, let alone most laypersons, are simply not able to interpret, filter, or understand much of that information through no fault of their own. It's, you know, I would, um, I'm not a rocket scientist. You don't want me interpreting which, you know, closed cycle or open cycle rocket engine might be the best for this particular booster. Uh, not a smart thing. But we have a similar situation where people are looking at the very complicated epidemiologic information and, um, immunologic information with regard to vaccines and the virus, et cetera. And they're making similar decisions without the background or capacity to do it. Um, and so they, because that information is so available, it's easy for everyone to think, well, I can wade through this and I can understand this. And unfortunately, the next step is that information is then shared openly and widely on social media. We've never had to deal with this before. And we've never had to deal with a situation where, as example, a friend of mine often says, um, you have a situation where TikTok and Facebook are on an equal footing with the National Institutes of Health, CDC, World Health Organization, and other um, well-vetted medical organizations. They get just as much time and just as much interest. And often it's easier to follow what uh, is going on in that simplified Facebook or TikTok version. So David, I want to I want to follow up on that because there's been recently some discussion of uh, particularly related to Spotify and a podcast program that has uh, at least displayed, if not encouraged, uh, the thinking around misinformation. Is there a way to combat that? I have one major rule of thumb that I think helps more than anything else. And that is when you, when you think about or you are listening to someone who's providing you information, particularly about the pandemic, but this really goes for anything. Uh, but when you're looking at information from the pandemic, because there are so many people out there with their own opinions, many of, of whom have done some decent work. Uh, you have to think of her from the point of view of who am I listening to? Mm -hmm. And my rule of thumb is if that individual was involved in pandemics, immunology and vaccines and uh, 
antiviral medications before the pandemic. And they have a track record as being an expert before the pandemic. They're probably worth listening to. If, however, though that individual or that group suddenly sprouted up during the pandemic and has suddenly developed uh, an expertise during the pandemic with no prior track record, those people should probably be taken with a grain of salt because it's very easy, as you know, when there's a crisis going on, and this reflects back on some of the basic principles of disaster medicine. It's very easy to develop an expertise about an acute problem during a disaster and to provide your opinion. There are more experts uh, than you could ever imagine that come out of the woodwork during a disaster. Uh, and oftentimes they don't have a full perspective. So that's sort of my rule of thumb. Well, I like it. And it's, uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. It's consistent with my belief that when you want an answer to a question, you go to an expert. Uh, uh, David, if you were going to try to improve your golf game, you wouldn't ask, well, you might ask Uncle Joe, but you more likely would do well by going to a golf pro. So I, when people come to me uh, with questions uh, about it, I try not to give too many opinions, but I ask them from whom they get their source information right. about a topic. And generally in medicine, it's their doctor. Uh, and so I encourage them to not listen to Aunt Sally, but to speak with their clinical experts that they trust. So I, I agree with you and I think it's sage advice, David. So what is the latest information on natural protection versus vaccination? That is a great question. Uh, Finally. <laughs> the baseline uh, has been we now well know that early on, natural infection, and by that I mean a community-acquired infection, in an unvaccinated individual certainly provides some level of immunity and protection against the SARS-CoV-2 virus. What we know, however, is that um, protection is incomplete and it is of short duration, somewhere in the, the range of 90 to 120 days, after which time you can actually get the same strain of the virus again. Not everyone, but most everyone. In addition, the level of immune protection, and there's a difference between immune response and immune protection. Mm -hmm. If you've had a SARS-CoV-2 infection and you're faced with another Corona, beta coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, yes, you're going to have an immune response. But is that response going to be sufficient to protect you from a symptomatic or a serious level of infection? And the answer to that is no, it has not been after about 90 to certainly 120 days. So the whole argument about getting an, a quote natural infection or community acquired infection and then not needing to be vaccinated is a moot point. Um, the data are clear. 
that no, that, that's not the way to go. If that were the way to go, we would not. <clears throat> if that were the way to go, we would not be having problems with uh, getting the common coronaviruses that we get every year because they change a little bit and your immunity wanes. So you get the bad cold virus every year if you're not careful. Um, and it's the same type of beta coronavirus that SARS-CoV-2 is. So there's historic precedent for that as well. So one other thing that we do know, however, is that if you had a natural type infection and then you get a vaccine, there are very, very well qualified vaccinologists out there who are now saying you're essentially bulletproof because it's a combination of that initial infection plus the added power of the vaccine that puts your uh, level of antibody titer much, much higher than somebody who just got the vaccines and a booster. Although both are very rigorous in their protective uh, process, having the, had that uh, virus and then getting the vaccine seems to work even better. Well, that's certainly good news. Um, I, and thank you for reminding us that a coronavirus in various forms uh, is and has been ubiquitous. They, it's been around. We keep thinking it's over when that only means the current variant is winding down. Is it almost over? So when we look at this in overall perspective from people that I trust in particular, and we put that historic intuition into the mathematical modeling as well, people that I respect greatly make the suggestion that February 2022 is likely the midpoint of the pandemic. And in particular, what that means is that historians 20 years from now will look back on this pandemic and say somewhere in the winter of 2022 was about the midpoint where things begin to turn the corner and the advantage began to slide towards humans rather than the virus. Um, that does not mean that we're going to wake up someday this February and say, oh, the pandemic is almost over. We're, we're halfway done. But what we will begin to notice is that as all pandemics do, it's very MacArthur-like in that pandemics don't necessarily end. They just fade away. And that's what we'll see. We'll notice diminished impacts over time. We'll notice a slow return to whatever the new realities are going to be. Uh, but this virus will become endemic and it is going to be staying with us. Well, David, I, I interpret that as good news. Not going to hold you to it, but uh, I think the possibility that we're in some form of a downslope is really good news. And I, I thank you for sharing that with us. David, how do the emergence of Omicron BA1 and BA2 relate to the continuing pandemic? Omicron is just the latest in a long line, obviously, of variants. And Omicron has the same nature as the other SARS-CoV-2 variants. And this is the overall nature of this virus. This is what it does. It changes. Uh, 
And by changing, it's able to keep a foothold in the human population. It can get around our vaccines. It can get around our natural immunities and defenses. And if it becomes more contagious, it can get into a larger group of the human population and therefore ensure its survival. If you go down the list of all the things that an organism needs to be a really good pandemic organism, the SARS-CoV-2 virus hits every single one of them. What we typically will see if history is our guide is that as these pandemic organisms spread and SARS-CoV-2 in particular, they typically become more contagious. They have to do that because that variant needs to be able to overrun all the other variants and ensure its survival by getting out into the human population. So they become easier and easier to catch. SARS-CoV-2 is about or a little in excess of the level of mumps right now, uh, but it has a ways to go to be to the level of measles. Um, that unfortunately means it still has some room to grow to become more infective. But the other thing these variants typically do is they become less lethal because it's not smart to kill off your host or make them too sick too soon because you would like to have an asymptomatic period where they uh, are able to spread before the host even knows they have the disease. And you don't want to make them too sick because if you kill them or make them sick enough, they stay home, they don't spread the virus until they're uh, able to combat it on their own. And so we see these kinds of things beginning to occur, likely with the Omicron, because it's so easy to get. It is indeed less lethal. Although when you have 100 times as many people getting it, um, you still have an awful lot of people needing hospital care, etc. Because a, a a uh, small percent of a larger number is still a very large number. So it looks as if maybe biology, which is the most powerful force on the planet, is beginning to move the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic into that endemic sort of road, which uh, is exemplified by the increased infectivity but decreased lethality of uh, the Omicron variant. David, it's fascinating to hear some of the reasoning behind uh, how a virus and why a virus might become less lethal. There's so much more to discuss, and I do want to discuss with you <clears throat> issues related to the thinking around some of the current medications, including the oral medications, and the concept that you've taught me of endemicity equilibrium. But not time today. I'm wondering if you would be willing to come back and have that further conversation. I'd be very willing. Thank you. That's great. So we're going to close this here. And I, again, want to thank you, David, for, as always, giving us important scientific information in a way that's understandable. So I hope you've enjoyed this Beyond Clinical Medicine podcast with Dr. David Hogan. I hope you, as I do, look forward to part two of this program. If you have any questions about this topic or suggestions for other topics, please contact me at beyondclinicalmedicine.org.